Thank you, France and Leon and Alice and Lo and Alex. Everyone. You know, I really love what we sang. What we sang now about the nations at His feet. I think you guys will probably get bored of me eventually speaking about it, but it just grips me every time, and it just gets me so excited. It's one of those things. Um, I remember Tians, uh, who, who used to be the pastor here, once asked me to tell him what is it? What is one thing about God that just like gets me amped, gets me excited, gets me, gets my focus? Um, and for him, he said it was the glory of God, uh, and it could be the love of God, it could be anything. But I think for me, it's also probably along the lines of the glory of God. But every time we sing that the nations are at his feet, it just really, it just really grips me. Um, Russia, Ukraine, the U.S., South Africa, the U.K., and all their leaders are at his feet. They are at his feet. And the distinct hope of the Christians even as it was for the Jews in all of their history, was that God went with them. You know, the Jews had the God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, going with them. The pagan nations around them had whatever they prayed to, trees or the moon or whatever pagan idols it was that they worshipped, that was the best that they had. But the distinctive feature of the Israelites was that they had the living God going with them. And so, too, for us, that is our distinctive feature as believers and of children of God, the God who has all the nations at his feet is the one who goes with us. With who else would we go but the Lord of hosts? And so, thank you for that song. I really want you to worship God. (laughs) And um, yeah, just meditate upon that. If that's difficult to believe, we never look to the, as Christians, we never look to the hand of man for salvation We never look to the hand of man for um, protection or provision or any of those things. The Lord of hosts is the one who goes with us. Okay, just a little side encouragement there. I'm quickly going to put on a timer. I saw last week that the sermon was actually an hour and 15 minutes long, which is a a record of the past two years, I would say. Um, I did not realize. Apologies for that. But let's see. Maybe we won't go that long today, I don't think. It's just that every time I look into it, the story is just that much more rich. Okay, so anyway, for those of you who are new here, my name is Matthew Murdoch. Um, I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be preaching through April, uh, maybe some of May, I don't know, <laughs> about Esther and the providence of God. Um, as I say, more and more unfolds. But before I get into all of that, I want to pray for us very briefly. Father, we thank you that you give us revelation by your Spirit, Father. And I ask for that this morning, that you give us a revelation of who you are, that we don't merely collect cool facts or nice information, but we have a revelation of who you are. I trust you for that this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the providence of God, part two. I'm just going to give a very brief summary, and then I'm going to try and get into the next phases of it. But maybe before we start, the providence of God, it's maybe a word that we don't use a lot these days, providence. 
Um, last week I said the way that I like to look at it is we can understand that God is sovereign. We understand that to mean that the nations are at his feet and that he is above. He doesn't answer to anyone. Everything is subject to him. Everyone will confess the lordship. Even if they don't now, will confess the lordship and rulership of God. So he is sovereign. And that's, one can look at that as almost a positional aspect of God. He is sovereign. Providence, I like to think of, is when he acts in the affairs of man from that position. So he, he works in our lives, either on a personal scale or a local scale, even international. God moves in the world of man and does things according to his sovereignty and according to his power. Whether that means reversing the laws of biology and giving a blind person sight, whether it means toppling a ruler in a country, whether it means whatever, he steps in and he does what only he can do. And he does it powerfully by his power and by his authority. So that's a way of thinking of that. Another way of the providence of God is just understanding his timely care, divine intervention, his, his timely intervention in our affairs and our lives something that we could not have foreseen or planned for ourselves, or even done ourselves. Okay, as I mentioned last week, briefly it was prompted from these two questions. As I said, you guys can catch up on the sermon, but last year we ended the year asking, what is God doing? Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father doing. Okay, well, what is the Father doing? That prompted the question in me, well, what has God been doing? As I reflected over the past two years and all that took place, what... If I had to ask myself, where did I see the hand of God, I couldn't actually answer you. I'd looked at a lot of other things about nations that are actually at his feet. I was very aware of what was going on there and all their leaders, but the hand of God. What has God been doing? Um, at the same time, I was reading Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, which are books about that. They are books about the hand of God at work in a situation very like, much like ours. I sketched the scene last, last week where... We took a trip through history from creation all the way to the time of Esther. And what's distinct about that time and what is a parallel to our times is that, that the Israelites were in exile. Okay? There was a time where they had David and they had Saul and they had Solomon. And after that, the kingdom split and then they had bad kings and some good kings. But the understanding was still that it was God's king ruling God's people. Got to a point by their idolatry, and continued rebellion towards God. God said, you will go into exile because of this, and then they did. Nebuchadnezzar came in, and they went into captivity, into Babylon. And they lived there for 70 years, and that is very much a place like we live in now. We are exiles in so many ways. Just like the Israelites were no longer, um, they didn't have that collective uh, I, I don't want to say identity, but as far as Babylon was concerned, these were just some Israelites scattered throughout the empire. Uh, they didn't have any special status. <clears throat> and it's the same for us as Christians today in a secular society. Um, I really liked how the ESV Study Bible put it. You're going to see I quote from that a lot. Something might tell you that I got for my birthday. So I'm really using that a lot. Um, but on the next slide there... <clears throat> This is at the introduction to Esther, how the ESV Bible puts it. Christians are called to live in a world with some striking resemblances to the one Esther and Mordecai lived in. 
Governing authorities are often indifferent and sometimes even hostile to the faith of believers. And especially in the West, events often take their normal course with little or no evidence of the miraculous. But the book of Esther, like the New Testament, teaches how to live in that world with courage and integrity, carrying out our responsibilities to the best of one's ability and trusting God in his providence to protect and provide. As we journey through this book, we're going to see the providence of God is when he intervenes, but almost always, pretty much always, there's a cooperation from his servants in that. He doesn't just step down and blast away the Egyptians. He uses Moses to lead the Israelites through the desert through the, or through the Red Sea, and then he deals with the Egyptians. And so throughout the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they are God's servants who cooperate with him. And that is really the key for us to understanding the providence of God and being part of it. We might look at it as just waiting on God to, to fix this thing and, and then everything will be better. But many times he's prodding you to say, I want you to do this. And prodding someone else, I want you to do that. And by that, God's providence starts to unfold. Um, so there's his providence and our cooperation. And what I really love about the book of Esther, and this introduction alludes to it a little bit, um, where they say, especially in the West, events often take their normal course with little or no evidence of the miraculous. So too in the book of Esther, when we read the whole story, God's hand is all over that story. He is moving and working and doing, yet he's not actually even mentioned once. He's not even prayed to once. He's not... His name is not specifically spoken of in the story of Esther, yet it is a book full of the hand of God and Him working. And I thought about this over the past two years as well, when I had to ask myself that question. It's not like God was especially mentioned. Maybe we had an idea of what God was doing in our community or in our hearts, but on a global scale, what was God doing? I don't know. I didn't seem like many people were asking that question. Some were, and giving you the answer straight away. As I said last week, I don't know if one man can be given the insight to give you all what's happening with all the global events. So just the disclaimer, I'm not actually going to answer that question, what has God been doing, to, to give you some sort of outline of exactly what has transpired over the past two years or so. But I want us to think in that way and to look at that way and to be aware of the providence of God. All right, so the next slide there, that is just a summary from last week. Um, the Israelites are in exile, as I mentioned, it's because of their idolatry. They go there, enemies come in and capture the cities and their territories, and the exile happens over a period of about 140 years in three different phases. Um, at that time, it's Isaiah and Jeremiah who are the prophets speaking to Israel at that time. So that's where they fit in. Um, and that's why their books are full of warnings and full of calls to repentance. Israel, please repent, and God will set things right. But Israel doesn't and consistently rebels. And then the other prophecies come true, as we'll see now. So lastly, then Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, comes in, and the Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians, destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the city. They destroy the walls around the city, and they destroy the temple and take all the Israelites out to, back to their own kingdoms. And then they send Babylonians to come in and live there. Okay, so Israel as a geographic collective nation is no more. All right, next slide there. 
Um, okay, we won't through, read through the whole of Jeremiah 25, but that's where we see God prophesying through Jeremiah what is going to happen. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is saying, For twenty-three years from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. That was the promised land, Canaan. The Lord brought them there. They started rebelling against the Lord while they were there. And he said, through various warnings of his prophets, if you don't turn back to me, exile is going to happen. So we can just skip to the next slide. Basically, the Lord is just saying, you haven't listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And there we already see an idea of how the providence of God may work. Babylon, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was not a Christian. It was... In Daniel, we read the history of how he eventually comes to realization that God is God and he's not God. Um, but that's a long story. But God uses the king of Babylon, a pagan king, as his servant for a time with what he needs to do with Israel. <clears throat> and then we can go to the next slide there. And he says, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah prophesies that Israel will be in exile for 70 years. Then, after the years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many na nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So God uses Nebuchadnezzar as a servant, as an instrument, if you like. Maybe an easier word for us to understand. But then he's also going to punish Babylon, according to the word of Jeremiah. So hopefully that actually, when you read Jeremiah, helps you to make a sense of where we are and what we are reading. Especially I find the prophetic books sometimes difficult to know. Who are we talking to here? Is this, a, is this a promise for me for today? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he's just actually talking to the Israelites. It can be he's talking to us. But we really need to understand historical context to understand the books of the prophets. Okay. Um, that was just a repeat slide. The next one. Okay, that's one we've already seen. So, as was prophesied through Jeremiah, Babylon's time is also finite. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was going to rule the world forever. God says, Babylon's going to get what's coming to them after 70 years. Then, as per the prophecies, Babylon falls as a superpower. And Persia rises. And that is in 539 BC, Cyrus of Persia overthrows Babylon. And in the beginning of his reign, he makes a proclamation, which we see there. 
in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. So now we're getting towards the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They, those books start to chronicle, as you can see in Ezra 1.1 there. These books start to chronicle that period of history, which is a history of Persian rule and Israel's time under that rule. So the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that needed to be fulfilled, what was this word? We looked at this last week in a bit more depth, but... In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles, the people that are stuck in Babylon. And he says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah prophesies the exile for 70 years, and then he prophesies that after the 70 years, God will bring them back. God uses Cyrus to do that. Cyrus is the one who overthrew Babylon. Um, and as you can see on the next slide, it was, oh, sorry about some of the texts missing there. Um, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Again, Cyrus, not a Christian, Jewish, godly king with special interest in the Jews, but God uses him. God stirs him up as God works out the events of history. He uses Cyrus and stirs him up to make this proclamation in favor of the Jews. And so, um, we don't need to read all of that, but I'll just read the start. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I don't know how Cyrus knew that, but somehow he knew that that's what God wanted him. Well, that's what he had to do. God stirred up his spirit to say this. It's a bit of a mystery to me. We don't have indications that he really knew God, but there you go. A bit of a mystery there for us. But what we do know is that God is stirring him up. Um, and then on the next slide, it's Cyrus says the Israelites can go back. You can go to the next slide. Can go back to Jerusalem, and the people around them must help them and give them supplies to do that. And it says, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And that is about 50,000 people. Cyrus says, you guys can go back. 50,000 Israelites under the leadership of Ezra go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the city. Okay, um, the next slide. We just looked at a bit of a timeline last week. I'm waiting for time on this recap. Um, Okay, Persian rulers, we saw there we had five of them of interest to us, Cyrus, Cambyses, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. Um, respective length of reign, but, um, oh, so you can go back to that first one. On the left there is when Ezra sends the people back, then it takes 20 years for them to finish rebuilding the temple. Then they move on to the work of the city. 
and the walls and the so on, but it's very slow. Even in that 20 years, we saw last week they'd bribe counselors against the Israelites to frustrate their purposes. Um, you can go to the next slide. <clears throat> so the temple has been rebuilt again, and then there's a 50-year period where they're sort of working on the wall and the rest. But actually at one point, Artaxerxes actually stops the work. He says, you guys are going to become a threat to me. I forbid you to carry on. We, we looked at last week, Nehemiah was then actually raised up to reverse that, to approach Artaxerxes and say, no, can we rebuild it? And he does. Miraculously, God changes the heart of Artaxerxes. So Esther, when we're preaching about Esther, we are over there in that orange block there. So that is kind of at a lull in this whole history of Israel rebuilding itself. The temple's done, but the building of the walls and all the rest is, is about another 75 years away. The completion of that's about 75 years away, and Esther takes place there. So that is just some context. Um, the next slide is, also, oh, we can skip the next slide, which is just a bit, bit more information that I already shared. And then we get to Esther. I've got the picture off the internet. The reference is there, if you want to find it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so then Esther, that is a well-known story. Movies have been made about it. You guys might have seen it, or them. I suppose they're a couple. But most people know One Night with the King, um, which is the story of Esther. But there's so much happening there. All I can remember from the movie is when she goes into his throne room uninvited. She should technically be executed there, but he extends the scepter towards her and says, you can come. And that's a beautiful picture of us coming to the throne room of God. If it was not for Jesus' mercy towards us and washing our sin away, by rights, we would also perish for our sin in his presence. Um, but we are going to take our time through Esther just to see what else there is there, and there is a lot. So maybe just on the next slide, I don't know if it's that clear, but that's kind of just a timeline of what happens in Esther, and we'll work, work through all of those as we go through the series, but... The point I want to make there is that the history of Israel unfolds over 10 years. We might read it in an hour, but it actually took 10 years for all these things to happen. Um, and we'll get to all that today. We'll look at the first one um, where the king holds his banquets. That's the start of the story. And a lot of stuff happens. Um, that's not an indication that we're going to take seven more weeks. I will talk about a few of those things in, in one sermon. But 10 years, and from what you can see here as well... In year three of Ahasuerus, or otherwise known as Xerxes I, is when the events happen, or start happening. The Esther story starts. And then it's quite slow. I mean, there's four years before she actually even goes into his throne room. And then there's another five years for Haman to cook up his plan to exterminate the Jews. Um, and then he issues that decree. But then in the last year, that 13th year, which is not the last year of Xerxes' reign, he reigns for about 35 years. But in that last, you see then year 13, then all the stuff starts happening. So that's just quite interesting for us to keep in mind as well. Some of these things happen long and slow, but sometimes, very suddenly, everything comes together. Um, but we often look at that and think, God must do that right now. He must do the big stuff right now. But he's maybe got a 10-year plan in mind. Okay, so onto the next slide there. It unfolds over 10 years. Turn to the person next to you, and for four minutes, tell them what you were doing 10 years ago. 
Discuss where you were 10 years ago and what you were busy with. Ready, steady, go. Okay. Many people prancing down memory lane there. Um, it's, quite a, it's quite a difficult question. Well, it's not difficult, but yeah, there are a lot of small things that would have happened. I mean, I'd only just started working. Now I've been working there for 10 years, and lots has happened. I wasn't married then. Lots of stuff has happened at work. Lots of stuff has happened at church. But I wanted you to reflect on, as we're going to see in the story, it's, there are some small, seemingly insignificant events in Esther that after the 10 years unfold to be the critical moments, which you don't see in that moment. Later you see it. So I want to encourage you as you reflect over the past 10 years, maybe this weekend, later today, over a briar or whatever, um, think about that. Okay, without further ado... Juliet, we are in Esther. Esther chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm going to try and read through most of Esther together. Um, again, uh, so that we don't just look at the highlights, and, but that we actually really get into it. Um, so in chapter 1, prominent things there, you've got the king's banquets, which we'll look at now, and then you've got Queen Vashti's refusal. All right, those are the two key events in chapter 1. So on the next slide, we start with Esther chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So for six months, King Xerxes holds banquets to show off how rich and powerful he is. And he has the armies uh, before him. So on the next slide there, I'll quickly just show you the lead up to his reign, so at the first there, you had Cyrus, he was the guy who conquered Babylon, nine years of reign, after that there was Cambyses, who was quite the tyrant, um, I'm, sh I'm not going to go into all the history now, but you can go look that up, there's a guy called Herodotus, who writes about Greek history, so you can look at that if you're interested in more details, but Cyrus the conqueror, Cambyses the tyrant, and then you had Darius, who reigned for 35 years, and under him the prosperity levels just went up in Persia. It became a very wealthy nation. For everyone who was living there, the, the quality of life went up significantly. Then his son, Xerxes I, or Ahasuerus, inherited the kingdom in 486 BC. And we saw there in that scripture that the story of Esther starts three years into his reign. So what's also interesting there for some context, you'll see at the bottom, in 480 BC was the Battle of Thermopylae. So Cyrus and Darius had quite easily overthrown the Greek armies that were neighboring them. They'd, without much trouble, they'd actually um, suppressed the Greeks and got them to submit to Persian rule and so on. But in Xerxes' day, it started to get more difficult. So... 
Interestingly, the Battle of Thermopylae is the battle upon which the movie 300 is based. I don't know if you guys know that movie, but um, inspired many gym contracts and air programs in my day. When you realize you guys could actually have an eight-pack, that is unbelievable. There was a, I'm sure there's a fair amount of CGI on old Gerard Butler there. But anyway, that story, the 300, is based on Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans and a couple of other guys actually pressed back on Persian rule, but then the Persians got betrayed by a Greek person. And Sorry, no, the Greeks got betrayed by a Greek And then the Persians still managed to beat the Greeks. But that was the start of Greece gaining ascendancy over Persia. So when we read previously there that the armies of Persia and Media, Media, the armies of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of all the provinces were before him, King Xerxes is preparing for war. He's probably preparing for this battle of Thermopylae. Um, so that's just a bit of interesting stuff there that's fascinating to read about that battle. I'd encourage you to do that. Obviously, the movie takes a lot of poetic license, but it's still very interesting to read all that history. So on the next slide there, we've got a map just to show you the extent. It was approximately 200 million square miles, and the Israelites were scattered throughout that region. So it's the green region there is the extent of the Persian Empire at the time of Esther, India here, modern-day Pakistan is around there. All the way across to Egypt, North Sudan is about there. Over here in the little corner, we've got the territories of the Hellenic League, which is the Greek people. So Xerxes was a serious king, a serious ruler. He staggering power, armies of millions, wealth. We're going to see now just very, very wealthy kingdom. He ruled with a lot of power and a lot of ruthless control. Okay, to the next slide there. So when the six months was finished, then he gave another seven-day feast in his, in his garden, for, for seemingly for all the people, both great and small, that were around Susa, which was the capital city. It says there, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Just to show you, it was just very opulent. Um, Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. The norm at that time was that everyone had to drink when the king drank He said, we're going to change that, and anyway, maybe it's because it was six months long. They just changed the rules a bit. Um, And then it says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the king's got his party on the one side, and Vashti's having her own party for the ladies um, in the king's palace. So they're actually separate. Then... On the seventh day of this feast, on the next slide, it says, When the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he was probably drunk, he commanded, Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigthan, Abagtha, Zethan, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahas, Arius, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. 
in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So the eunuchs are the people, are men, were castrated men that were servants of the king. So he had seven around him all the time to do his bidding. Many eunuchs sort of ran the king's uh, palace and his harem and all his wives and concubines. And I suppose it was important that they were castrated as well. Um, <clears throat> so that they could serve the king properly um, and, and not be competition for him. But he's feeling jolly. He's just bragged for six months about how rich he is. And then he says to all the people, yeah, and now it's both great and small. So maybe it's ordinary citizens of Susa that are also there. He says, won't you guys go and fetch my wife? Man, she's so beautiful. Let me just show you how beautiful my wife is. So he wants to brag a little bit more. And then it says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. We don't actually know why. The author doesn't really elaborate on that, but maybe it was just inconsiderate. She was having her party. I don't know what the story was, but maybe the, it's, she just didn't come. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And now we start to see a bit of the king's personality problems unfolding. Very touchy, very egotistical. We're going to look at that. Haman is also like that, and Nebuchadnezzar was also like that. But these kings, who are super powerful, used to everyone bowing at their every command, giving themselves a godlike status, can't handle being defied. So the king really becomes enraged. He's been humiliated in front of the ordinary citizens, and his anger burns within him. Then he turns, in the next slide, to his wise men. We're going to see that they weren't that wise, but... He had advisors and counselors around him, as one might expect. <clears throat> then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being those guys there, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So the princes of his kingdom sat around him, and these were qualified, I suppose, lawyers, people who understood Persian law, and the times, thought leaders, who knows. But they were his wise men that he looked to for counsel. And he says to them, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So he's had a, a domestic humiliation that he doesn't know how to deal with. So he says, well, maybe there's a, a legal avenue for me here to regain my composure or regain my status, my reputation, my ego, build all those things back. So he turns to his advisors, advisors and says, is there a legal recourse for me? Then Memucan, one of the princes, he starts being super alarmist. He starts really working this thing. He says, O king, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials, and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be no, made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." 
If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, with, so that when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So on the next slide there, what we see in summary here, we've got the king's vast kingdom, his power, his opulence, no shortage of money, and his personality. You get a window into that, how he's been humiliated, how he takes that in his ego, and the blunders that he starts to make. So he's actually just asked the guys, what can we do? They say, let's put something in writing which cannot be repealed. Now, in the Persian uh, kingdom, when the, when the king did that, you couldn't actually repeal it. You couldn't, if the king had put it in writing, that was how it was going to be forever. He couldn't actually change his mind and reverse that. Um, these guys, um, after Vashti's refusal, Memucan advise him, advises the king, but gives him really vindictive advice, as we saw there. All women will be like this in all the places and in all the kings and all the men will suffer contempt and all the rest. It's very exaggerated, alarmist and excessive. But one has to ask what could be gained by this edict. So perhaps in their sight there was a, they saw it as a threat. Perhaps there was the threat that there would be social disorder. Maybe, I don't know what Persian culture was like um, and roles of men and women and whatever, but these princes perceived it as a threat that if a woman should rise up against her husband, there will be trouble. And that may be a problem. Does issuing, issuing an edict solve that? Not likely. Um, it doesn't, we're not sure. It seems that the edict is just to notify everyone what he's done to Vashti. So it's really just to make an example of her and show this is what happens when you disobey the king's command. And these guys say, we want to try and tell the people this is what happens when you disobey your husband. It was foolish because it was legislation that they actually put in that couldn't be reversed. Um, and what's interesting about this is you can be the richest and the most powerful, but you're not satisfied. He's got everything, but he's actually very fragile, um, and he doesn't have restraint or real wisdom. His advisors could have been the most educated of all, Lawyers and everyone from the best parts of society, noblemen, but they were foolish. Um, and you see here, it's in worldly terms, you're at the top. But maybe, maybe if we think back to, to Debbie's sermons on wisdom, without the fear of God, it, it literally is worthless. It, it will crumble. It will fall to pieces. You can have the cleverest and the highest qualifications, but if you don't have the fear of the Lord, all the best these guys can offer him is actually really foolish counsel. And the best that he can do without the fear of the Lord is take it. Um, and so he does that. Vashti gets put away, which basically means she's divorced. She's no longer queen. And then on the next slide, I don't know how many days it is, but 
Oh, sorry about that. Uh, after these things, when the anger of the king had abated, when he'd calmed down, when he'd sobered up, when he was in his right mind, he remembered Vashti. Maybe he regretted what he had done and what had been decreed against her. So now, these guys that attend to him said, here's a solution, let's Let's have beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So they're about to carry out that plan and look for all the best young women of the land to try and find a new queen for the king. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish. I'll explain now why that's important. A Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He... Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here in the story is where Esther comes into play. The backdrop is that the king is looking for a new wife because he divorced his old wife in a fit of rage. <clears throat> so... <laughs> Yeah, that's the long and the short. Um, so now, Xerxes, one of the key characters in the story. Now enter two more key characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. They are cousins, but he's obviously much older than her. So her parents die, and he looks after her as if it's his daughter, but they're cousins. And what's important there, son of Kish... If you guys have a good memory with words, Kish was the father of Saul, um, the king of, of Israel at the time, in Samuel's day. So Mordecai was a direct descendant of Kish. Mordecai himself, when it says there, who had been carried away, it's referring to Kish who was carried away. Mordecai himself was born in Persia, based on timelines and what age we expect he would have been. Mordecai is not the one who was carried away from Jerusalem. It was Kish when, all the, when Nebuchadnezzar took the whole lot of them. And Mordecai was born in Persia but raised as a Jew. He still understood. You know, when the Jews were scattered, there wasn't a collective group of them doing stuff, but they retained their, their identity individually and with their families and, and however they were scattered. Okay. Um... Okay, so when the king ordered and his edict were proclaimed, many young women were gathered, and Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai. What we see there, Esther was taken. I can't imagine that she actually had much choice in the matter. It didn't seem like Xerxes was big on democracy or choices or, or taking polls and having a vote. Um, by his authority, they just took the best woman of the land, and Esther was there, so she was taken to the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who looked after the harem. So, I won't go into the details of the harem, but it's not a nice place to be as a woman. I don't think it, was, it would have been a pleasing prospect, even if it was the king of Persia, you are going to there to be used by him. 
So uh, Esther was taken into the king's palace. She just ended up there. Um, and then it says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. However nice that may be, I don't know. But already we start getting clues of Esther winning favor, which which, um, plays an important role later on. On the next slide there, it says... Esther, being taken in, had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Um, We could just skip over the next slide, but each woman had a turn to go to the king. Um, And after 12 months, just the beautification alone took a year. So again, an idea of the timelines she was there for a year getting perfumed with myrrh and ointment and all the rest um, and being beautified along with all the other women. And how it worked is that they would go, they would have a chance with the king, and then they would never go back to him unless he called them by name. So you, you needed to, the king really needed to like you. Um, we can go to the next slide. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And we start now to get clues of Esther's character. She, when you went to the king, you could take something as a gift for yourself. And I suppose there was a lot on offer. She asked Hegai. She was humble and abstained from greed and in that moment, and really asked Hegai, what should I do in this situation? And she was humble enough to take that advice. And that is part of what was winning her favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Um, And then, just a summary of the next slide. Uh, One grace and favor, as I've mentioned, and then she, long and the short, becomes the queen. He actually, Xerxes actually chooses her out of all those women, and she's the queen instead of Vashti. So Esther is now a Jewish girl, a Jewess, queen of Persia. How does that happen? We just saw how that happens. Seemingly rough circumstances, uh, possibly not that noteworthy. But next thing you know, Esther is actually queen of Persia. The rest of the story... In, shows how that deliverance of the Israelites comes through that. Um, And then the king gave a great feast for her. It was Esther's feast, and he was generous towards Persia and gave them a tax break and lots of gifts. Um, Then there's a little story where, where Mordecai, we can assume he had been promoted by virtue of his association with Esther. It says he was sitting at the gates. Um, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and when he was there, he heard two of the king's eunuchs conspiring to harm him. So the gate was sort of where people came in for judgment. If you'll remember the story of David and Absalom, Absalom was the son of David who wanted to overthrow his father. What he would do is he would intercept people who were on the way to the city. The gate was where you would receive a judgment for, 
for whatever case you had. Wise men and officials would sit there and, and meet out the law. Absalom would intercept them and say, what's your case? And, and then the guys would explain. He'd say, oh, if only I was king, I could give you justice. There's no one there at the gate to help you. And by that, he gathered people to himself and eventually defied his father. So that's where Mordecai's sitting, at the king's gate. It's, it's not a random place. It's a place where, where justice was yeah, decided. There he hears that the guys who guard the king want to actually kill him. And Mordecai, with this knowledge, goes and tells it to Queen Esther. And Esther tells the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Again, so that's quite brutal death that Xerxes carries out on the guys who come after him. But Mordecai's faithfulness is recorded in the Chronicles. So that's also important because we see later the king picks up the Chronicles when he can't sleep at night and he reads about Mordecai and how Mordecai had actually saved his life. And that becomes a crucial moment in the whole story. That is a summary of Esther 1. Um, what we saw there, as I mentioned, God placing one of his servants exactly where he wants her. He's elevating Esther as well as Mordecai. But God has Israel's greater deliverance in view. Um, <clears throat> they'd been in exile. God was going to bring them back, remember. So... Um, those who were stuck in Persia were despised and vulnerable. So much so that Mordecai actually told Esther, we can't actually afford to tell people that we're Jewish right now. Because it's immediately going to put a target on our backs and they're going to kill us. Uh, the Jews were despised and vulnerable in that kingdom. As we, and, and we looked at last week in Ezra 4.6, 4 verse 6. Um, the people of the land had actually written to Xerxes to say, these Israelites are, are troublemakers. They're causing trouble, yeah, and you need, to, you need to quell their little thing that they've got going on, yeah, rebuilding the temple and so on. So they were vulnerable, um, which plays, the Persians had their own religion as well, that you can also read about, how they worship this and that, and um, various gods incompatible with the God of Israel. The initial prospects were unfavorable. I mean, they were there as exiles in the first place, but Esther was taken into the harem. But later we see how God works things together for her good and the good of his people, those who love him, and that they are unlikely heroes, but their conscientiousness and their humility, Esther's way that she conducted herself in the harem and Mordecai's faithfulness to warn the king of this assassination plot are things that... that Make them win favor in the eyes of the people. And those small times of faithfulness um, bring them into a place of powerful influence. And it is sometimes that there are people who are not especially ambitious. We couldn't say Mordecai and Esther had a special strategy and a special takeover plan and a special... We like to ask, what's your strategy? I don't think these guys had any strategy. Stuff was just happening to them. But when it counted in the moment, they were faithful. And God elevated them. Um, so they weren't especially ambitious, but they found themselves being taken a hold of by God. The way um, Michael Eaton puts it on the next slide um, is, is one of the commentaries that I used to, to study this. He says, all of these events will have great significance. 
God takes his time and works slowly, weaving together his plans for history and for the lives of his people. If we trust his sovereignty, waiting for him to work and cooperate along the way, we too will be used for his purposes. So I think that's probably where we're going to leave it today. Um, What happens next is really exciting. That's when the story really starts gathering steam. Um, In short, King Xerxes promotes a guy called Haman to the top of the kingdom. He's, he, and the kings of that time took on almost like a godlike status. Um, you can see it in the way that they behaved. And Haman was promoted to, to basically second in command and walked around the city. And the king had commanded that everyone needed to bow down to him and pay him reverence. Mordecai said, sorry, I'm not doing that, which got him into massive trouble. Um, he refused to do that which unlocks a plan of Haman, who actually then, in his humiliation, seeks to take revenge on all Jewish people and actually puts together a plan to exterminate Jews from the land completely. So we'll get into the details of that next week um, and how that all happened, I think, because I don't want to rush through that. It's very exciting. So that's the cliffhanger. Do come back. For, uh, <laughs> for the next, but I, yeah, I want to encourage you, in the past 10 years at your work, maybe there's some insignificant events, maybe in the past five years, there are insignificant things that have happened that will come to mean something in the years to come. Whatever it is, is God's, you can be sure that God's, God's providence is always working, but he's looking for you to cooperate, and so in those small moments of faithfulness, be faithful and trust him, trust him to do what he's going to do. Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then, and then we will close for today. Father, we thank you that you watch over our lives. As Psalm 139, it says that you perceive our thoughts from afar. You know everything that we think and that we go through. And I pray for each one of us, Father, in our workplaces and in our families, and in whatever responsibilities we find ourselves in, Father, give us discernment by your Spirit to know what to do. Give us discernment to... to be able to to interpret the time, to interpret the moment, and to know how we should act, Lord. Grant us humility like Esther, and conscientiousness like Esther, and loyalty like Mordecai, Father. Give Give us that character to make faithful decisions in the key moments, Lord, and we trust you for that. And I really ask as well that as we think on these things by your Spirit, Lord, would you illuminate to each one of us the work that you are doing, the work that you have been doing, even as we look at the past 10 years or the past two years, Father, there are things that you've given us to do and you've already started to work in each of our lives and I pray that you'd give us wisdom to perceive that and faith to trust you in that, Lord. I thank you for each one. In Jesus' name, we glorify you and honor you and magnify you.